to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Please find Philippians chapter 4. This evening in my message, I want to speak to you about two powerful words that we find in the scriptures. In the gospel of John, there are seven I am sayings of Jesus. You may remember that we've studied these in our Sunday morning uh, series on John. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. And perhaps one of the most important times where Jesus said, I am, he spoke to the Jews and he said, before Abraham was, I am. All of those instances where Jesus used the words, I am, tell us a little bit about his character. And they set him apart, really, in a powerful and unique way. And I've commented uh, several times in our study, the Gospel of John, that when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, he was speaking the same words that God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. And you remember the story that when God was talking to Moses, that Moses said, now, God, you want me to go to your people and you want me to give them a message. And when I go to them, who shall I tell them has sent me? And God said to Moses, you tell them, I am hath sent me. And those are the same words that Jesus used in the gospel of John. He said, I am. And of course, those words are the name of the exultant, almighty God. That's the name of Jehovah God, I am. And when Jesus spoke those words, he was saying that I am Jehovah God. Now, this evening we could study those powerful words, and those are certainly good things for us to study. But those actually are not the words that I want to speak to you about tonight. Instead, I want to talk to you about uh, some powerful words. They are powerful, and yet they are humble and self-effacing words. Because the person who spoke these words, when he said, I am, he was not speaking them for personal exaltation, but he spoke them for humility and because he was in service to the one who is the great I am. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read from God's word. We're looking at Philippians chapter 4. I want to begin reading at verse number 10. Philippians 4, verse number 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need." I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity we have to come together tonight. I ask you, Lord, you might speak to our hearts through the message. May we see uh, the meaning of these powerful words when they were spoken. I am, and the different characterizations that we find from these words. Speak to our hearts tonight, Lord, and we give you the praise and the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I know when I told you to turn to Philippians and I spoke about someone saying the words I am that you would probably recognize who that I'm talking about. Of course, we're speaking here about the Apostle Paul. And this evening from Paul's writings, I have pulled 10 different statements where Paul says I am. 
Now, we've just read one of these in Philippians chapter 4, and that's actually an 11th one or another time that he said, I am. And certainly this is one that is to be commended because Paul said, I've learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. And Paul is saying that uh, I'm happy no matter where God has put me, no matter what difficulties I encounter, no how much trouble I have to go through. I'm thankful and I'm content wherever I am that I might be able to preach the gospel. I'm not going to spend any time, much time on that one, but there are at least 10 other places where Paul spoke in the scripture and he said, I am. And in each one of those instances, it tells us a little bit about his Christian character. So we're going to look at 10 different instances in the scripture tonight where Paul said, I am. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 15, Paul said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So saying number one, Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. Now, that, that's really an amazing statement if you think about it. Because as Paul says this, he looked at what he was before Christ found him. And he said, I am the worst sinner of all. And in that statement, Paul put himself into the category of thieves and robbers. And the statement puts him amongst people who were, were idolaters and, and uh, murderers and rapists, the very dregs of society. And Paul put himself in that company of people and he says, I am the worst of sinners. And folks, I think that when Paul said that, he wasn't giving us any false modesty here. He's not really speaking in hyperbole because he really did consider himself to be the worst of all sinners. And that's really all the more remarkable when we look at Paul's life and we see what he was before he was saved. Because here's a man who was very highly regarded. Uh, He was a person, uh, probably many people believe he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He was more educated than most of the Jews. He said that I was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most highly respected of all the Jewish rabbis. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul talked about how he was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. And he says, as touching the law, I was blameless. And so if you look at Paul's life, you wonder how could he ever say this? How could this man, having the position that he was in, how could he ever say that I am the chief of sinners? Well, why would he make an assessment like that? Well, it's because that in his self-righteousness, he was a person who vigorously persecuted the people of God. He purposely went and put Christians into jail and put them to death. And so in verse number 13, a verse preceding the one that we just read where he said, I am the chief of sinners, Paul said, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now, what a life that Paul lived. And I can't think that, help but think that every time that Paul considered this, when he thought about what he was saved from, that his mind went back to that time when he stood there and held the coats of those who stoned that godly martyr, Stephen. Paul was there when that happened. And Paul took the coats of those men so that they would be less encumbered as they threw those rocks at Stephen and crushed out his life. And so Paul looked at that and the shame was so great in his heart that he couldn't say anything less, but I am the chief of sinners. Now you think about Paul judging himself that way and we look at ourselves and we think, oh, we're pretty good people, aren't we? Uh, We measure our lives by our neighbors, 
or by the crime stats that we read in the newspaper and we think, well, we've done a pretty good job. We're pretty good people. But when you take a look at yourself as Paul looked at himself, then we see ourselves as God sees us and he sees us as totally depraved, totally unable, totally helpless people. And we thank God that when he saw us, he reached down and he saved us and he brought us out of that miry pit. Chief of sinners, that's what I am. That's what Paul said. Now, Paul says, secondly, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, his second saying, he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the second saying of Paul, he says, I am crucified with Christ. And that's also a very interesting statement. Uh, We've used that. I I use that in conjunction with our study of the book of Ephesians. And remember, Paul speaks there what we've been studying on Wednesday nights about putting off the old man. And he said, my old life is crucified with Christ. The old man that I was is gone into the grave. That man is dead. He's buried. He's gone. That's a completed action. And Paul is telling us that an old man that we were once before, he's never to be resurrected again. And when we go into the waters of baptism over here, we're picturing that, that we have died to this old way of life and we've risen to walk in the new life in Christ. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He said, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And so when you read Paul's words, you see an old life that's forsaken. Now, before he was saved, as I said, Paul was a man of prestige. He was a man of authority. But now that he's saved, the Bible shows us that Paul was content to go back and to support himself when necessary, making tents for a living. That's, if that's what it took to preach the gospel of Christ and to support himself, that's what he would do. Now, do you think that there might have been times when Paul was going through some of the troubles of his life that he didn't look back and think, wow, I sure wish I had my old life back. Do you think that Paul, when he was traveling around in his missionary journeys, when he was beaten and stoned and left for dead, that happened to him at Lystra. Do you think that Paul didn't at some time or another think, wow, I wish I had my old life back? No, Paul never thought like that. You know why? Because Saul of Tarsus was dead and Paul the apostle was living in Christ. And so he says in Philippians chapter 1, According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also shall Christ be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So he says that old life is gone. Out with that old life, in with the new one. I'm crucified with Christ. And the life that I'm living right now, I'm living a life of faith. And it's my faith that sustains me. Now you wonder, how is a change like that made? How is it possible to have a life turned around like this? Well, we actually find it in Paul's next I am statement. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God 
which was with me. So statement number three that Paul makes, he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. A songwriter said, grace, grace, marvelous grace. No, we preach grace. Grace is preached over and over. But probably grace is the least understood concept in the Bible. When you look at this, how do you get from a self-consumed, self-righteous person like Saul to a God-consumed, Christ-conscious man like the Apostle Paul? How, How does that happen? Well, there's only one answer for this, and it's grace. It's all God's grace. You know, it's amazing that people can look at Scripture and they can read Ephesians chapter 2 where it tells us there that we are dead in trespasses and sin. We can read Ephesians chapter 4 where it tells us there that we were blind, that we were past feeling. We can listen to the words of Jesus when he said, there's nothing that good that can come out of an evil heart. We listen to the words of Jeremiah who said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And people read those verses and on and on the Scripture goes telling us what our condition is, and yet people come to the conclusion that just any time that I want to, I can turn around and I can decide to follow Jesus Christ. I can go completely against my nature. I can reach out to God. I can turn to him any time that I want. I don't need grace. I'll get grace when I come to Christ. And do you realize that that is the same as saying that by the power of me, I am what I am? That is just so messed up. I mean, this is so skewed because this isn't just Methodists who teach it or Roman Catholics who say that. There are Baptist churches and colleges that are preaching the same thing. What happened to a Baptist belief in grace and that salvation is all by God's grace? Paul said this, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory? As if thou hadst not received it. And I want to tell you something, that if divine grace is not operative from the very beginning, from the very moment that, that Christ comes to you, if grace is not operated, operative at that very moment, then salvation is not all of grace. Salvation can't be of grace and at the same time be of any effort that we put into it. There's no such thing as mixing human effort with grace. And so Jesus said it very clearly, no man can come to me unless he's drawn by the Father. Now, as we read the Apostle Paul, we find that most definitely he is the apostle of grace. He talks about being separated from his mother's womb for the preaching of the gospel. You see, Paul didn't wake up one day and say, you know, I think I'll be a Christian today. I think I'll change my life today. I think I'll be something different today than I've been before. No, that didn't happen to Paul. Here's what happened to him. One day he was struck down on the road to Damascus. One day Jesus came to him and spoke to him. And I'm telling you something, Jesus did not say to Paul, you know, Paul, I sure wish that you would become a Christian. I sure would like for you to follow me, Paul. I'm I'm asking you, Paul, would you please come after me? Would you please do what I tell you to do? Now, Paul, I don't have any power. I don't have any ability to bring you to myself. I really can't do anything to help you. It's all your decision. You have to decide to come to me. So I'm leaving it all up to Paul. I'm leaving it up to you. Please, please. Paul, won't you be saved? You don't find that in the scripture. But if you go to most Baptist churches today, that's exactly what you do here. Here's what he heard. I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. He heard Jesus say, Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. 
So Paul said, it's not me. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He said, God knocked me off of my horse and his grace picked me up and he made me one of his own. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm crucified with Christ. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Then he said, fourthly, I am persuaded. And we find it in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. He says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I tell you something that I learned from reading that passage. There's no doubt in my mind that Paul was a real historical Baptist. I mean, Paul was one who believed in eternal security. He tells us there that every person who puts his faith, places his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, never has to worry about losing salvation. Paul knew that God would never give up on him, and he was never going to give up on God. This salvation, the life-changing experience that Paul possessed, was something that would be with him forever. God would remain forever faithful to him and always true to his promises. And do you notice the language that he uses? Everything that you can imagine is in these verses. Everything is excluded from all eternity. Things that could take our salvation away. He says, not life and not death, not angels, not principalities, not the powers of Satan. Anything that we know right now and anything that shall ever come to an existence. It'll never separate us from the love of God. Friend, you don't have to have any fear when you place your your soul's salvation into the hands of Jesus Christ. There's no need to fear Listen to what Paul said about his commitment. He said, For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Now that is a statement about the power, safekeeping power of Jesus Christ. Now this is certainly true, that if God can make a new man or a new woman out of you, he certainly has the power to keep you that way. That's why I say that I know that Paul was a Baptist. Because if there's one tenet of our faith that we've kept consistently since the time that the church was started is this belief right here that we are eternally secure in Jesus Christ. From the very time that the church was instituted and it was started, Jesus was teaching, the apostles were teaching, and we've held it all through these centuries. A Christian can never lose his salvation. Now, thank God for that persuasion because I don't have a hope so. This is not maybe so. It's not if I can hold out long enough and be good enough salvation. I have an inheritance, the Bible says, incorruptible, undefiled. It never fades away and it's reserved in heaven. I believe my name has already been written down on that inheritance. And it's been there from the foundation of the world. That is assurance. Now that leads me to the fifth statement. Paul says, I am God's servant. In Acts chapter 27, verse 23, it says, For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve. Now, you can tack this one on to the reasons that Paul was persuaded. Because when he needed assurance from God, there was an angel that came to him. An angel strengthened him, and this was the angel of the God that he served. Now, you may remember this story from our study in the book of Acts. This took place when Paul was on his way to Rome. Paul was a prisoner. He was taken there to, he was on his way to Rome to appear before Caesar to be tried. The ship that he was sailing on was sailing at close to the winter time. 
The ship's captain made a foolhardy decision because he decided that he wanted to sail at a time of year when sailing was not safe on the Mediterranean Sea. And so the ship captain decided that he was going to leave a safe harbor, a place where they could have uh, spent the winter, and he decided he just wanted to go a little bit further. Well, when they did that, they were caught with a tempestuous wind. And they began to be afraid because of this wind. Now, against Paul's advice, they had decided to sail. I mean, after all, I mean, who's Paul? Uh, Paul's just somebody who's been shipwrecked twice before. What does he know about sailing? What does he know about shipwreck? But this is what happened to him. Uh, They were into this, this tempestuous wind. Fear was in them. But Paul wasn't afraid. Because there was an angel that came. God sent an angel to him. And he said, now, Paul, the ship is going to be lost. But there's no person on board the ship that's going to lose their life. You know, sometimes we worry and fret about things that go on around us. We're concerned about the danger that faces Christians and all the things that are going on in the world. Well, here's something that I know. We may lose everything that the world has to offer, but no lives will be lost. None of our lives will be lost. Not one servant of God will be lost. God's promised that he's going to bring us all safely to the shore because we have an anchor that's anchored to a rock which cannot move. The Bible says we're anchored within the veil. So Paul knew it wasn't because he said, I am. It wasn't because of any power that was in him so he could say, I am. He could only say, I am, because Jesus had already said, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you had an angel standing beside you, do you think that you could make the next statement? Because he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so the next saying is, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, I kind of threw this one in. He says, I am, but he also says, I am not. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Do you think that you could say that? Why couldn't you say it? You have an angel standing by you. I think that you have myriads of angels that are standing by you. You know, people like to talk about their guardian angel, and some say, well, we have two guardian angels. Well, I happen to think that we have thousands upon thousands of angels that are standing around us. I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's what Paul said. And so he preached it to the poor, preached it to the rich. He preached it to the meager. He preached it to kings. You know, I've often wondered what it must have been like when Paul met up with some of those fellows that he sat on the Sanhedrin with. And they looked at Paul and they wondered, what in the world has happened to Paul? Paul, what's wrong with you? What kind of decision have you made? Paul, you must be nuts. What in the world has happened to you? How could you receive Christianity? When he stood before Festus and Agrippa and he told them about the resurrection, Festus looked at Paul incredulously and he says, Paul, you're mad. You're beside yourself. What's wrong with you? And Paul looked at Festus and he said, Oh, I'm not mad, Festus. He said, I'm serious as a heart attack. Are you brave enough to stand up for Jesus? Or are you like the Apostle Peter who, in weakness, decided that he was going to talk and stand with the enemies of Christ? wasn't long before he's sitting with the enemies of Christ, not long before he's speaking like the enemies of Christ, and he began to partake in their evil deeds. How courageous are you for Christ? You know, many years ago when I was growing up, 
there was an itinerant preacher that our church supported. And uh, this man, when he was in our area, he would always come and stay at our house. One of the things that he liked to do is when we were on our way to church, he'd want to stop the car and he'd want to get out on a street corner and he'd want to preach. Sometimes he would go into a bar and he would preach there. I remember times when I was little that uh, we would be on our way to church and we'd decide, well, we need to stop and eat dinner before we go to church. So we'd go into a restaurant and almost without fail, this man would get up before the meal got there. He'd take a spoon and he'd rap on the table a little bit and he'd call everybody to attention and then he would begin to preach the gospel. And boy, I'm telling you what, I felt like crawling under the table so many times. That was embarrassing to do that. But I learned from that man what it means not to be ashamed of the gospel. Now, Paul wasn't ashamed when he stood up for his beliefs. And even if it meant a death sentence, which of course it did, it did mean a death sentence to him, he still stood up for Jesus. And there's so many times when we can't do that, the repercussions against us are not death. There may be some ridicule from people. But we can't stand up for the gospel. You know, the only person who has a right to be ashamed is Jesus Christ. He has a right to be ashamed of us. But praise the Lord for this. He's not ashamed of us. You know why? Because he tells us that we are trophies of his grace. He's never ashamed of us. Although we are so many times of him. Now, statement number seven is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Verse number 22 of that ninth chapter, he says, To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. So the next statement is, I am made all things to all men. If there's one standout feature of Christ's life, or of Paul's life, rather, it was his desire to see souls saved. And that was the all-consuming thing for Paul. I mean, nothing took precedent over that goal. And so that meant that whatever comforts that he might have in life, whatever advantages that he might otherwise enjoy or other opportunities that he might have, he would forgo all of those things if it kept him away from the preaching of the gospel. So this means that Paul was willing to adjust his life. Whatever it took, he was willing to adjust to that so he could preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, his personal preferences were very often put aside, most of the time put aside, because he had that one goal to reach souls for the Lord. Now, Paul knew that the most important thing that he could do was not to convince people that everything he said and did was right, although we do think that he was led by the Lord. He wasn't trying to convince people in all different phases of his life that everything that he said was right. But as long as a method that he could use to reach people didn't transgress some kind of godly principle, Paul was willing to pursue that. We also ought to use godly methods when we go after the lost for Jesus Christ. And we would be foolish to forsake a godly method uh, if it's not absolutely prohibited by the Scriptures. And this is what Paul did. He employed whatever scriptural means were at his disposal in order that he might reach people for Christ. Several years ago, I was reading some information about some people who call themselves Old Line Baptists. And I was reading this, and I found out that these people are against cooperating with other churches in support of missionaries. And I found out that they were against having Bible conferences 
unless they, lest they be accused of trying to tell other preachers how to preach. They were against Sunday school classes because that separated people from the auditorium. They were against using hymn books that had notes. Now, a hymn book that had words in it, that was okay, but the hymn book can't have notes. They were against using a piano and an organ, and God forbid that they should have a clavinova like we have. I mean, that would be rank heresy. They were against all of these things. Now, you see, that is what happens when people get their minds off the primary goal. The primary goal is to reach people for the Lord. And so, in many churches, everything that they do becomes, or the winning people to the Lord becomes the secondary issue, and all the other things become primary. And so they become more notable for the things that they're against rather than what they're for. But here, we need to understand that Paul says all things need to be done to the glory of God. So the first thing that we do in our lives, we learn to worship God. And the second thing that follows closely on its heels is that we evangelize the world for Jesus Christ. That's the mission of the church. Paul recognized it. And so this is why he says, I am made all things to all men that by all means I might save some. Now, if that's true, if he really did do that, and it is true then the next statement would necessarily be the consequence of it because he said next, I am pure from the blood of all men. In Acts 20, verse 26, wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. You see, what Paul understood is that there is a day of reckoning coming. Paul knew that one of these days, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I'm talking about Christians here. Now, we know that the judgment seat of Christ is not a place to determine whether people go to heaven or hell. I mean, if you are a Christian, that judgment has already been passed. When you trusted Christ as your Savior, the judgment about whether you would go to heaven or hell already took place at the cross. So you don't have to worry about that. But there is a day of reckoning coming for Christians when we're going to stand before an almighty God and we're going to give an account of ourselves how we have used the abilities that God has given And how have we improved upon the things that God has given us? Now, what this means is that God has given you certain spiritual gifts to use. And God expects you to use those things to edify the body of Christ. You're to use your spiritual gift as God gives it. That means that if you're a singer, you ought to sing. means if you're a teacher, then you ought to teach. If you could help in the nursery, then you ought to volunteer. If you can be an usher, you need to be a part of that. If you could do PowerPoint or you could do sound, then you ought to volunteer for those kinds of things because you are held accountable for the faithfulness to use the gifts that God has given. Now, God gives us gifts also for our witnessing. And Paul could say, I am pure from the blood of all men because he preached everywhere. He never stopped giving the gospel. And so when the judgment comes, when that great white throne judgment comes, and there are people there who knew the Apostle Paul, not one of them will be able to point their finger at Paul and say, you didn't tell me that you were a Christian. You didn't tell me how to be saved. No, Paul could conscientiously say, I am pure from the blood of all men. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you come down to the end of your life and you'd be able to make that statement? I am pure from the blood of all men. That's Paul's testimony. Well, Paul did come down to the end of his life. The previous eight points that I've given you are kind of a panoramic view of Paul's life and of his character. But the I am statement that he makes next is a statement that was made near the end of his life when 
He'd come down to an end of life of many years of faithful and devoted service to God. And he said, next, I am in a strait betwixt two. Paul says, I can't make up my mind. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 to 24, he said, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not, or I don't know. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And so after many years of preaching and all the hardships that went with that preaching. Now Paul's come down to the end of his life and he's ready to meet his maker. He's ready for the final reward. Now for him personally, this is absolutely the best thing that could happen to go home to be with the Lord. And I I want to tell you something, folks. uh, That's a blessed thing to happen. If If a Christian dies, if you have a loved one who dies who's a Christian, then that's sweet sorrow. There's no reason to be upset about it. It's sweet sorrow because that person's gone to the place that God intended from the very time that he formulated a plan of salvation. This is God's intention to bring his people home with him. Well, that's true with Paul. To go home to be with Christ, that was a wonderful thing for him to think about. That was the best thing that could happen to him personally. But Paul still had this gnawing sense down in his soul. There's still this sense out there. There are more people to be saved. There's more people to reach. And so Paul is thinking here, I love the souls of men. I can help men come to know Christ. And yet he didn't know what to do. Should I go home to be with God? Should I go there or should I stay here? Because that's more needful for people who need to hear the gospel of Christ. Now, could you think like the apostle Paul thought? Could you know that around the next corner was a beating? Could you know that you could, as he was in Lystra, be stoned? in the very next place that he would visit and yet still be willing to forgo personal happiness and reach that next soul for Christ? Well, in Paul's heart, that was a genuine dilemma. That's something we probably wouldn't even consider at all. So here's his choice. Give my life in more service for more souls or do I go home to be with the Lord? Well, you you know, he was really some kind of man that even had to hesitate over that decision. But ultimately, we know the decision wasn't his because when God calls, we have to go. And so Paul was ready to go. He was ready for God to take him. And that brings us to the last statement tonight. He said, I am now ready to be offered. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, he said, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. And perhaps we ought to be aware that what Paul is speaking here, he's not an old man coming down and getting ready to die of old age. It's not like he's trying to decide, well, is it time to leave this life because I've lived so many years and now as natural things go, as age goes, I have to die. And so he's hesitatingly contemplating about whether he really wants to die. That's not the case at all. Paul had been thrown into prison. He was in prison for one reason and one reason only, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul was not bitter because the cause of Christ had brought him down to the hour of death. Instead, he looked at this and he said, I'm ready to go. Point me to the executioner. I'm ready to go. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. Isn't that a remarkable statement? Because here is Paul speaking of this like we would talk about catching a plane. 
or getting on a bus to ride somewhere. The time of my departure is at hand. My number's up. Got to catch the ride. Got to catch my... I'm going to be sitting in a front row. That's what Paul was thinking. Now, the difference in Paul's departure and other departures, like we talk about going somewhere today, this departure, there are no bags for him to pack. Everything's already been prepared. All is ready. Everything's in order. Paul doesn't need to worry about taking a thing with him because there's nothing that he would need in heaven. God has it all for him there. So Paul said, I am, I'm ready to go. I am ready to be offered. So here we have 10 I am sayings of Paul, and we find in here words that speak the true heart of this great apostle. He says, I am the chief of sinners. I am crucified with Christ. I am what I am by the grace of God. I am persuaded. I am God's servant. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am made all things to all men. I am pure from the blood of all men. I am in a strait betwixt two. I am now ready to be offered. And actually, there were many, many more times where Paul said, I am. He said, I am sure. I am the least. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful. I am an ambassador. I am set for the defense of the gospel. I am made a minister. I am ordained a preacher. And on and on and on, Paul went with I am statements. Now, I want to ask you something tonight as I close the message. If you said, I am, how would you follow that statement? What would you say next? I am what? I'm stubborn. I am rebellious. What if you were to say, I am willing? If you could say that, then you could say, I have the heart of the Apostle Paul. That's what he was like. He subjected himself totally to the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I want to say. Whatever it is, God, I am willing. And I hope that you can say that tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great Apostle Paul. How much we learn from him. And Lord, how willing he was just to give his life, to do all that was necessary to serve you. I ask you, Lord, that you'd make us that kind of people. Put it within our heart and our mind that we love you. We want to serve you. We want to do everything to to the best of our ability to be all that you want us to be. Blessing this invitation tonight, Lord, we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.